Hello and welcome to Irreverent Testimony brought to you by Netroots Radio, the political podcast by and for millennial and Gen Xer types. From a left-wing perspective, it is our 200th episode today. 200th episode spectacular. Uh, it is August 31st, 2019. I'm Travis. I'm Rachel. And our very good friend Sarah Burris of rawstory.com is here with us. Yay! Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Hi guys! Thank you for celebrating this milestone of um, God. I don't know what to say. I don't want to say futility, but it feels like that sometimes. <laughs> but never- it feels sort of like laughing into the yawning abyss that is this political world. Yeah, I, I don't know if laughing or crying or screaming. Or, we do all those things, but, on this podcast, yes, yeah. we make all those sounds together. So, uh, Sarah. What's up in Washington? Oh, it's still messed up and dysfunctional, and mm-hmm. um, it's still a little bit humid, which is really <laughs> serious. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's been August recess, so things have been pretty chill around here. The best thing about the city is uh, is the August recess, because all the elected officials are gone all their staffers are gone yeah, um yeah they're gone and just, they they couldn't be bothered to come back and work on gun legislation which they should have but yeah of course not of course not <sighs> and in colorado they come home and then they avoid us yeah well yeah. steady hoyer doesn't no no yeah i uh steady <laughs> hoyer showed up and colorado yeah, yeah, yeah rachel got some facetime with him he uh he was coming i think to um uh, campaign for Jason Crow out of uh, CD6. Um, if you guys remember the controversy back in the um, 2018 primaries, Jason Crow was the party favorite and he was primary sort of challenged. Well, he was not primary challenged. There's just another candidate for the Democratic primary um, going against Mike Kaufman named Levi Tilleman. Mm-hmm. And Steny Hoyer decided to call Levi Tilleman and tell him that it wasn't his turn and he should drop out. And then the intercept ran with that. Yeah, because he recorded the conversation, Levi, um, and then thought that this was going to be this big scandal. And it turns out it wasn't because that's how politics works, is that, you know, the Democratic Party is going to pick the guy they want. Um, Anyway, he showed up at my workplace to give a little speech uh, and, uh, what was the speech about? Oh, it's just a like a campaign stop. He's, he was an interesting guy. He's a obviously um, a control freak mm. um, and a sort of yep a narcissist. Sort of charming and funny, but also like with this underlying edge of he's probably such a fucking asshole. Um, but it doesn't show on the surface. That was my impression. Um, Sounds like a guy who's been in Washington for a minute. He's been in Washington for 39 years. And I yeah. uh, like to quote. He's actually uh, been in Washington a hell of a lot longer than that because he um, just out of uh, while he was in college, I think he and Nancy Pelosi both interned at the um, in Congress at the same time. Yeah. Um, he likes to talk about John Kennedy an awful lot. That yeah. was like half the things he had to say. Well, if you can name drop JFK, I mean, oh my god, it's a good quote name to him, drop. and like he's the inspiration for why he went from being a, a student with a one point zero GPA to a three point eight in one semester because he was inspired by JFK. Blah blah blah. It was a whole lot of nothing, but anyway. 
Uh, well, I have a question for Sarah about some she may have some insight on into some uh, dirt or going around D.C. As I'm sure you know, Sarah, um, Trump's oh, what was her title? The one who just got canned. I mean, she was basically his assistant. Right. His his assistant for uh, having a few pops and gossiping with reporters about the Trump kids. You know, here's the thing. Um it's not just his assistant. Every single person talks about the Trump kids. I mean, they, they really, really do. And I think, um, and, and honestly, I, I think the White House, this specific White House has a tendency to, you know, talk out of school in ways that we're not used to. Um, you mean when you hire and, a bunch of idiots and reality show people, that's what happens? Well, I think, too, there's the loyalty factor where, you know, Trump is so obsessed about loyalty, and but he doesn't reciprocate. And so okay, right. people who I think normally would be loyal to him um, because there's no reciprocity, he's, you know, they're just like whenever he screws them over, they're just like, all right, screw that. Or I think when a lot of people see him destroy somebody else that used to be you know, the, the Trump golden boy or whatever, Mm -hmm. then they're just like, why should I, why should I care? So you really do have an absurd amount of trash talking, uh, about each other in the white house all the time. (laughs) And most people who are old hats in politics really, really hate, uh, Jared and Ivanka because imagine why, Oh my God. I mean, the entitlement is one thing, but I think too, there is a lack of, um, they're, they're really just not that smart and they're not able to have nuanced conversations about, um, policy issues. And I think it's this, um, I mean, you can see it in what Ivanka is working on. It's very surface level issues. They're very, they're things that you hear politicians talk about, but that they don't file actual bills on, right? Like there are a lot of ribbon cuttings and, you know, promoting women uh, run businesses. And I mean, things that, that generally you do as an elected official in your community, but it's not about actually bringing money into your community for specific projects. No, she seems to be working a lot harder on like getting her trademarks in China and her perfume line in, you know, Bangladesh or whatever the hell. You know, she does that, but, that. That's her. Focus. Well, I think, too, it's um, it's all image. Like, it's not about actual policies. It's just how things appear. Yeah. And that's yeah. really frustrating to me because it's like that's the kind of stuff that you talk about during a campaign season. But that's not what happens when you're actually governing. And um, and that's the thing about the Trump administration is they don't actually know how to govern. They just know how to campaign, which is right. why he never stopped campaigning right. and they nothing has gotten done. Right. They never did. They still have not, and now they're doing it more. Well, uh-huh. he, here's the question. Um, this uh, – I forget her name now, but the one who just got canned, the assistant, um, she was dishing all this dirt to these reporters, but no one has printed anything. Um, is that just because it was just very – it was too gossipy? It really didn't have any journalistic credence? It wasn't worth like repeat. I mean there are a couple of things that have leaked on Twitter like – you know, Trump thinks Tiffany's fat or something, but um, like, was it just nothing worth printing or the, just not? Well, typically, 
like the way that it usually works with this White House is because there's so much lying and there's so much deception and nonsense, um, and because the real, you know, nonstop attacks on the press, you can't just quote one source anymore. It can't just be like, you know, what is her name? It was Madeline something. I can't remember what her last name was. Um, but you can't just quote Madeline and that be the end of it. It has to be, um, you know, like three or five sources in the White House who concur with, you know, I heard her say this or I agree with this or people have talked about this or. And so you're starting to see now, you know, places like Politico and Axios and stuff will say, according to three sources. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like it really is an absurd amount of sources and they and they openly will write about how many sources within each article because of this whole attack on the news. Yeah, it, it wasn't that long ago when it was just a source said, an anonymous source. But And now, you know, Lawrence O'Donnell didn't help that with with him running with one source the other night. Um, yeah. So. In a normal world, Lawrence O'Donnell would totally have been able to run with one source, but not anymore. Not in, not in Trump world. Well, and the fact that the source that he ran with also, like, wasn't vetted and hadn't seen the documents and it was a pretty thin source. Mm-hmm. So. They, they often are. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And you think back to like deep throat and, uh, well, that was a good source. I mean, right. I mean, that's the thing when, when you're talking about the, the woman who literally is outside the door of the oval office, I would think that's a good <laughs> enough one source to go with, even if it is just one source, but you know, yeah, just not that way anymore. So I did a fun thing this morning, and um, I don't know if fun's the word. For <laughs> I don't either. In advance of uh, this 200th episode, I went back and listened to the first episode of this podcast that I was involved in because it's like the second or third overall, it was the fourth. Um, okay. Travis started this podcast with his friend Pierre uh, back in uh, August of 2015, and oh. we had just started dating in May of that year, and. Um, so three episodes later, it was like early September, I had my first um, guest spot on the show. And then Pierre promptly um, signed it over to the two of us. Oh, let's get real. Rachel took it over. <laughs> it was not. a hostile takeover. <laughs> I absolutely did not. Yes, you did. I absolutely did not. I'm not saying in a bad way. I'm just saying I you did, did not. Pierre literally said Rachel has more substance and time than I do. Rachel, and you walked up to this. the bridge and you said, <laughs> look at me. I'm the captain now. Well, anyway, um, it was quite illuminating. It was back in the 20, 2015, um, the GOP primary days mm. before 2016. Boy, were we naive. And it was a little Those bit painful to listen to. We, were, um, we had a bet going about how long Trump would last <laughs> until he either got bored because we decided he didn't really want to be president anyway, which well, I still believe we is were true. Right about that. Uh, Carly Fiorina was the flavor of the week <laughs> that week. What do we say about her? Um, Pierre asked me if I thought that women would just vote for a woman because she was a woman, or if women cared about messaging. Oh God. Uh, which I was not as snarky then as I would be now <laughs> about that question. Um, we were Bernie supporters back then. Sure. Yeah. No. Um, and. I was still sort of on the fence, uh, but leaning Bernie, but still like Tillery. Um, we talked a lot about, I mean, the things we were saying 
made perfect sense back then. You know, eventually Republicans are going to come around. They're going to realize that none of <laughs> they these... They need an actual politician. Right. None of these... This joker's not going to be able to beat Hillary. Who can beat Hillary? We were very sure that Hillary was going to be the eventual candidate. Um, like, we weren't wrong. We were just so wrong. <laughs> well, I think what the main thing innocent. we said... We were uh, innocent. Yeah. Yes. It felt very, like, very naive. The main thing we said was, like, oh, we understand Trump's appeal with being a, a loud jackass and a racist, but that's not enough to nominate him for president. Mm-hmm. The Republicans, as bad as they are, they, they're not going to just, you know, nominate their neighbor who's the, the racist neighbor guy. No. Yeah. We were wrong. No. I mean, we were so certain. Drunk uncle. No, yeah, we were like, you know, I was like, my opinion was um, once like Super Tuesday hits, people are going to come to their senses and they're not going to actually elect this man because he has no possibility of beating any Democrat. I literally said the sentence like my niece could beat Donald Trump. (laughs) It hurts now. It hurts. Um, So it's interesting. The thing is, is your niece actually probably could still beat Donald Trump. (laughs) Maybe. She's very bright. Yeah, yeah. She's never given. And I bet her negatives are right. I bet her negatives are not that high. Right. No. no. Everyone loves her. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, that just thought it was it would be fun to go back and and it wasn't that fun as it turns out. It was painful. Illuminating though. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You said you were going to say something about it as well. Well, just to give everybody a little history, if you haven't been listening these full, uh, you know, four, four plus years. Uh, my friend Pierre and I, we had a, a retro pop culture podcast about stuff from the 80s and 90s. And at a cer- we did a bunch of those. And, and at a certain point with the uh, 2015 primary season heating up, we, we I think he brought up that, hey, look, this is – we always talk about politics off the air and this is a really important election and really – let's do a politics podcast. And you know, what the hell? And we did. And we did a few episodes and, and – um, there's some dispute about how Rachel ended up on the air. Mm-hmm. The way she describes it is like one of those '80s movies where she storms into the editor's office, and and I'm sitting there with a cigar, saying, <laughs> you know, girls can't talk politics. But I don't quite remember it that way. It's not at all what happened. <laughs> that's what, you were just like, that's how you describe it. You basically. literally were like, come on the podcast, and I was like, okay, and then that's what I said, that's... and you argued with me. No, about that. and then you were like. Pierre doesn't want to do it anymore. You should do it. We decided that you're better at this, so you should do it. And I was like, okay. The only thing that is disputed is the first mm. episode. Which first episode? First episode of the podcast that you and Pierre did is about whether or not the United States should be split in two. Oh, right. And you said that was your idea. It was absolutely my idea. I've been talking about it for months, and mm-hmm. I shared it with you, and then you started this podcast, and then you did a podcast about whether or not the United States should be split in two. And I was like... Oh, this is the dude I'm dating who just steals my idea. What? I put yes. you on the podcast. You're the co-host now. You're the only reason anybody <laughs> tunes in, so it worked out fine. It did. Anyway. Anyway, Sarah Burris. All right, Sarah. <laughs> so we haven't talked about the current nightmare. Um, it's funny. When I was listening to the, the first podcast, there were 11 Republican candidates at the time. We were making fun of their clown car. I thought there was like 22. There was 11 at the time. In August well, of 2016, there were 11. Trimmed, <laughs> they already trimmed half that. And we are in August of 2019. September and we tomorrow. Have we still have like 20 20? I mean, only 10 are making it to the next debate stage. So effectively, there's still 10. But officially, there's still like 20, right? Yeah. What are your thoughts? Well, 
the fun part about that looking back is if um, you said it was in August mm-hmm. when you did it. Mm-hmm. So Rick Perry didn't drop out till September, and he still remains my favorite all-time Republican candidate. Um, with, and I can't decide honestly between the smart glasses Rick, Rick Perry or the other one. I know, right? Uh, it's so hard to choose because he—it's funnier with the smart glasses yes. because I feel like he has more confidence. I know, right? Like he's like. The opposite of Superman and Clark Kent. Like he puts on the glasses and he's like, I am now a professional politician who knows things. <laughs> Rick Perry is the only candidate I can recall who was visibly, obviously high during a debate. I don't know. Herman Cain was. Remember? You think he was? Herman I think Herman Cain is just habitually just high. A, yeah, I thought he was just a weirdo. Yeah. Oh, no, I meant Ben Carson. Sorry. The, he was just seems sedated. Like he I literally think, yeah. was like falling asleep on the stage. <laughs> like, what is happening to this man? He's is on, like, he okay? Soma or <laughs> like, is he all right? He just seems like he's gonna fall asleep at any moment. Um, and then Herman Cain, yeah, just seems like just a fucking weirdo. But um, yeah. So, what do you think about where we are right now, Sarah? I mean, we've talked a little bit about how annoyed I am with the fact that we started doing this election so early. <laughs> Yeah. This is really yeah, it gets earlier, um, earlier seems like it does and I think it's this it's weird because I remember um, in 2004 when I worked on my very very first campaign as an official paid staffer um, I remember thinking why are we not running campaigns year-round because it seems like it would be a lot easier to raise money if you just slowly did it over two years rather than you know starting the year before at um, you know, after Labor Day and then having to work your ass off for a year. Um, but somebody listened to I, it seems because now. <laughs> yeah. And now it really never ends. And I'm like, and I'm in a completely different field where I now just have to cover all this stuff. And I'm like, y'all, I just finished 2018. Can I just go to the beach for a little bit? Can I just chill and no, sleep? And- no rest. Right. And then it's just, it's, it's the thing. And I think it was because a lot of folks wanted to come out very early on and try and scare off other people. And it's like, Oh, it's so cute that you think that that would really happen. Like the, the ego of the average politician is such that no one can be scared away from, from running against them. It's really only long-term elected officials who are like, you know, 80 years old who've been in office for 30 years. And they're just like, screw it, I'm done. Like, those are the people who have a little bit more perspective on this thing. And so all these folks that, like, still have all this energy and still want to run for office, I'm just like, I don't know what y'all are on, but (laughs) maybe that's what I need to get through the next year. Maybe. I don't know. Um, Well, can I give you and your publication a shout out? Um, I really enjoy Raw Story. I really enjoy... Uh, your, um, you know, your columns, the stuff you do and our friend, good friend, Kagro, he's always, uh, you know, uh, plug in raw story and, and their stories. And y- you guys do this great combination of hitting, you know, condensing or hitting the big stories, but then also like people will hear about if it makes national news, like a, a barbecue Becky and just kind of mm-hmm. forget about it. And like, you guys are on top of that, that shit that's happening all the time every day. 
Um, like, yeah. you know, obviously some, some black run publications like the root and other, and other stuff mm-hmm. are all over that, but you know, you guys are one of the main publications. It's really like, Oh no, no, this is going on every day, all the time. It never stops. And, uh, yeah, like, and I really appreciate one of the, that from you guys. One of the interesting things is, I don't know if you guys saw, but there was the story about the, um, how the Russians are really trying to sow discord in the country by promoting those kinds of stories. Um, because they want to create a racial animus. And so I, after I read that, I felt really, really conflicted because I was like, these, these are important things that are happening where, and, and they've been happening for, you know, a century, Mm -hmm. but for some reason we don't really talk about it that much. And so I feel like it's this very important responsibility to give perspective to the rest of the world. Like this is what people of color are dealing with. This is, you know, every day in America. And, and so I feel like we should talk about it, but now it's being used by these damn Russian bots to, um, you know, to pit white people against people of color. And I, it really bothers me because it's like, I don't want that to be the world. I don't want that to be our country. But what the Russians do is they will do that. And then the same guy, you know, in his in his cubicle in Vladivostok, will will turn around and then promote some white supremacist thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, just just from my standpoint, like I can't let that you know stop from from educating the public about these these things that happen and and you know let remind everybody that yes, this institutionalized racism. And, you know, uh, soci- sociological racism does exist because that's that's what we're up against all the time is this argument that it's not even there. Like they just did a poll and it's still a majority of Republicans out there say that anti-white ris- racism is a bigger problem than anti-black racism. Right. I mean, yeah. what insanity. Of course, if you pin them down to give one example in their life, they couldn't. But – you know, th- this is still what they try to go with and what they try to perpetrate. Well, and I think, you know, somebody posted something on Twitter the other day that said, <clears throat> do you know who's not, uh, you know, shooting up uh, like who, you know, who aren't mass shooters um, is women. And that's true. And then someone else said, yeah, they just call the cops and let them do the mass murdering for them. And mm. I thought, yeah, that's right. Like what we're talking about is something more nuanced than a lynching, something more nuanced than, you know, um, a mass shooting of a black church because it's, it's white women feeling entitled and feeling, um, the same racism that fuels all those other things. And then said they just weaponized the police, um, for very slight things. And I was talking to my hairdresser the other day and we were talking about how you never call the police. And he said to me, the only time I'm ever comfortable calling the police is if I've had a conversation with myself that I'm okay if somebody dies. Hmm. And I said, that's exactly right. That's the only time you should ever call the police is if you have reckoned with the idea that if you do that, someone might die. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I have these conversations sometimes with my uncle, who, um, my great uncle, who is a former cop, a uh, white guy, looks like a former cop bald, you know, shaved head, mustache, like old Burt Reynolds mustache, except now it's white. Um, And I remember when all the mass shootings really started, I asked them, like, what is this? Why is there such an outbreak of 
of cops shooting people because I don't remember that being a thing, you know, when I was a kid. And he goes, it wasn't a thing because we were taught de-escalation. We were taught you never pull your weapon. He said, in my entire career, I pulled my weapon twice. Right. And you do not pull your weapon unless you intend to fire. Right. And that is the lesson that they teach to the Secret Service. And I don't know at what point it became, uh, you know, that changed. And and now it's it's no longer about community policing and, you know, building allies and, and no. picking up a crazy person shouting at the moon and taking them to the hospital instead of shooting them. You know, like, I don't. I don't know what changed. I think because, it's all part of this, that tough on crime movement from the 90s. And well, I wondered, too, because the thing that he said is that a lot of the times the, the new cops that they're bringing in are just people who want to shoot somebody. Yes. yes. And that there is not a um, they're so desperate for people who want to be police mm-hmm. um, that that most of the folks who could find another job would get another job. Right. And so it's, it's become like they're the, because you're not paying for services, you're not paying people like fire and police and teachers an actual wage. You're, um, you know, you're not getting the best of the best anymore. Right. And you're not the, I was talking to a cop who was an Uber driver. He was an ex cop. And he was saying that, um, the, the sort of standards are pretty low and that like the the personality tests the kind of like psychological evaluations that used mm-hmm. to happen before you were able to have a gun and a badge just really have become sort of a joke that they sort of become really lax and and that they're not strenuous enough at all mm-hmm. and then that like the training is um not as rigorous as it used to be that he said that you know, there used to be like these long periods of time where you would train and you would go into these like sort of um, mock situations where, you know, you'd have actors come in and you'd walk up to somebody's door and it would sort of try to like mimic what it's like when you don't know the kind of situation that you're getting into and that that just there just isn't the funding for it or the will for it anymore. And so you just put these fresh cops who have had basically no psychological evaluations and give them a gun and put them out on the streets not understanding what their motives are for becoming a police officer, putting them in a stressful situation um, that they're not really properly trained to handle, and then they shoot people. And Uh so I think it's a combination of things, but the police do not feel like a safe institution at all. And I don't know if you remember, but when the Trayvon Martin thing happened, that was when we learned that um, Zimmerman had had applied to be a police officer at several different Florida uh, police stations and that he could not pass the psych evaluation. Yep. <laughs> and yeah. which we know the know, that, is already so low for. So can you just imagine? Exactly. Yeah. It's just wild. And why did he want to be a cop? So he could, shoot so people. he could shoot a black so person. He could shoot people. Is what he did. Yeah. Like yeah. He did it. So he played pretend cop and did it anyway. And then he became a right wing folk hero until even they realized, Oh wait, no, this guy really is completely unhinged. Yeah, maybe we'll just make a president one day. (laughs) Anyway, uh, can I pivot to bitching about the media with you for a minute, Sarah? I I know that (laughs) the first thing, this is already a couple weeks old, but I wanted to scream into the void when we were getting into the uh, Mark Halperin rehabilitation Mm. campaign. What the fuck? You know, 
This reminds me of the, wasn't it Ryan Lizza on, was another one? I mean, it's the same sort of thing where you have these bad actors um, who are doing sketchy, shitty things. And um, I, I don't know if it's honestly because they're so in with yeah. the network heads. You know, that's the only thing that I could think is that these people are allowed to continue because there are old male hosts and old male, um, you know, people running the network to who don't get it and who don't care. Um, I mean, it just just strikes me as time has passed that nobody remembers that Mark Halperin pressed his dick against people in file rooms and like, you know, and then threatened to ruin their careers if they told anybody. They're like, people forgot. The news cycle's crazy. I'm sure. No, it'll be but fine. The, the problem is they didn't forget. They Women just don't didn't. care. We didn't. And the thing that's so crazy is that Mark Halperin is not so brilliant no, and has he sucks. such amazing insight <laughs> he's that terrible. he's really worth it. Like, right. I just don't understand why. Like, what is the point? Right. We there need are him so for many what? other people. <laughs> for what? There are so many other options out there for people who can do commentary, but. I mean, again, like there, there's this whole weird movement at MSNBC where yeah. all of a sudden people just, you know, disappear, and it's almost always women of color or men of color. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, why are and, those people disappearing, and, and then we're replacing them with Mark fucking Halperin? What? Why? Yeah. Why? I mean, it's, uh, what was it? Who whose show just got canceled the other day that Trump loves to talk shit about? Um, Oh God! Oh, I didn't know somebody's show got canceled. Uh, it's the one on MSNBC that he used to he makes fun of. They, he was only there for um, for like four months. Oh God! Oh, I, I keep going to say Steve Steve Ducey, which is obviously not right. Um, no. Donnie Deutsch. Donnie Deutsch has uh, a Saturday well, show. Well, I'm that, gonna, first I'm of all, miss Donnie Deutsch. <laughs> right? Like, first that. of all, no nobody watches the news. Uh, on a Saturday. Secondly, nobody ever watches the news on a Saturday night. Yeah. And um, so they can't. They canceled him. I didn't know that. Yeah, after like four months. What's hilarious Good. is that he um, he wasn't getting any ratings, and so Trump was making fun of him for not getting any ratings. And it's like, I would love to see Donald Trump try and do a Saturday night show and see how that works. Well, right? that's what we were going to get had he lost the election. Remember, we were going to get Trump TV. Not that he necessarily would have had a primetime show, but. Um, I guess they would have tried something, but why did Donnie Deutsch get a show in the first place? Like, what, yeah, I don't, he's just like a rich, a rich asshole and not, socialite, and not just another hour of Joy Reid, who right. is like the goddess of Saturday morning talk, right? So I don't, I don't get it. And the thing that is so frustrating for me is MSNBC's new infatuation with former prosecutors. And it's, like if yeah. the saying That's former the prosecutor era. is suddenly like, therefore, uh, you know, the sort of like moral authority on everything and knows everything. And it's like, since when did liberals think we, that prosecutors were our fucking friends? But they've never right. been our friends ever. They are. We, the enemy. Them, we often write about them as because it's just an access to a legal expert, right. you know, so like and. We really only use the Obama prosecutors, and it has to be somebody from a, um, you know, ideally from New York or D.C. who actually knows stuff about um, the circuit courts and stuff. 
Yeah, and and things that are not necessarily criminal, things that are, are civil scandal, political scandal cases. Those are the um, the big ones. Um, but we never but, say like criminal defense attorney blank, and then they're like a legal authority. Like it's it's never those are never the people that we look to to say these are illegal authority. And I it's so frustrating for me because being a former prosecutor, particularly a criminal prosecutor, um, just makes me dislike you at the outset, like immediately. And then we look at criminal defense attorneys as though they're like these slimy scum who just try to like get through loopholes in the law to right. let it's bad the law people and order go. SVU universe. And it's yeah. like, that's not the reality of the world. That's not the reality of how criminal defense works. That's that's assuming that all cops are telling the truth and that, n- that no corruption exists and that anybody who a cop said did a thing, obviously they did it. And so if you try to defend them, then you just want bad guys to go away. And it's like, when did we enter the world where liberals think that that's like progressive people are like, yeah, that must be true. Like, no, I think it's in the age of, of Robert Mueller, where all of a sudden this this prosecutor, the 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 federal police state then became what we thought was our ally. Right. And of course, putting all our eggs in that basket really worked out for us, right? Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because I remember um, we were with some of our other podcasting friends. We were very, very worried. I guess it was about a year ago now about, well, Trump is going to fire Mueller and then we're really going to be you know, in this bad spot and we have to come together and figure out what we're going to do and start the revolution and, and you know, all this stuff, which was a little presumptuous for podcasters. But in any event um, – what we didn't consider was no, no, no. Mueller will be allowed to finish his course, and then it won't, it won't change anything. Like that's not what we even discussed or what even came to mind, right? Because we said no, no, it's okay. The the, the FBI the is going to come save, save us. us. The FBI, a, a known ally to like, what the fuck? The FBI who killed Fred Hampton. The FBI who killed Martin Luther King Jr. Who jailed Leonard Peltier. The FBI who... what? Since when are we like, yes, they're going to save us. It's going to be great. The state is going to come in and it's going to be fine. No, no, no. I wish there was like... What I keep holding on to is that I believe in the justice system and I keep hoping that there will be justice because that's the way it's supposed to work. And... And I, I don't know why that is. Like, there's just something either nostalgic or maybe it's desperation where I just keep thinking, you know, these entities who are are so eager to go after, um, you know, people of color and the little guy, certainly, for the love of God, if there is enough anger and and frustration, certainly there's got to be you know, somebody who will be willing to prosecute Donald Trump. Like, there's just got to be. It has to happen. No. (laughs) I do. What's interesting is... exactly the way it was meant to work. I honestly do believe that after... If he is out of office, if he does not get elected in 2020, I think he's going... He's going to be prosecuted. I really do. I don't. And it's not necessarily because it's the right thing to do, although it is the right thing to do. Um, But I think that there will be an overzealous prosecutor who wants to run for a higher office, um, who, who wants to make a name for themselves and they're going to do it. 
Um, I, I don't think it's out of justice. I think it's completely out of ego. Well, I definitely think Trump is afraid of that, which is why no matter what happens, uh, we've talked about this, Rachel, a, a peaceful transition of power, no matter what happens in 2020, is highly unlikely. Yes. Uh, the interesting thing is, like, I'm not. I don't plan on leaving after just eight years. Maybe it'll be ten or thirteen. The thing is, is that the that I the Secret Service will haul him out. Like that's not. It just doesn't work like that. And it'll end up being a really big embarrassment for him if he does not do that. And that if he, you know, if he's not willing, if he just stages a sit-in, um, <laughs> it, it'll just plant some. It's going to be really bad. Yeah, I mean, it really is going to be bad. It's going to be a graceful transition regardless, right? Yeah, well, that, my point is he Obama can do a, a sit-in and it'll be embarrassing, but he'll be screaming all over Twitter. and His followers are going to come yeah, out en masse and God knows. Illegal immigrants all voted and they stole the election. And, you know, I mean, like, it could be really, really ugly is my point. Even if, yeah, even if he has to be hauled out by, you know, the marshal of the Supreme Court. I'm not worried about him specifically staying in the White House. I'm worried about... The people that support him staging some sort of, you know, and see, I don't really, I don't worry about them because they, they don't show up for stuff. You know, they will show up to see him, but are they going to take to the streets? They never have before. You know, are they going to, are, how many people showed up at the border as part of a militia? It's only been a couple hundred people out of the, you know, but what, millions and millions of people in the United States. The government and out of, right now is on their side, right? Like they don't really need to. Yeah, they're because, not the insurrection right, right. now. Right? They're they're the they're with the with the government. The government's on their side, so there's not a lot for them to protest or a lot for them to like. They feel like they're in power when they feel like they're not in power, and he gives them a reason to believe that the election wasn't fair because brown people. I don't know that they just stay home. But I think that there are just not enough of them. Like, that's what I'm saying. It's a numbers game. There are just not. I, I mean, we, we talk a lot about how progressives are the majority. We really are the majority, the overwhelming majority. Yeah, but they have and guns. That's the problem. They do. But I think if, if some right wing nut bars start shooting, they're going to get shot and killed. Like, that's the thing is you can't shoot at police. Uh, regardless of who you are. Well, that's assuming the police yeah. will have their backs to us, <laughs> not mm. the other way around. Right. Rachel and I are, what's the word for it? Um, suspicious, to put it the least, that hmm. when, when, it, when it comes down to we it. We are evidence-based yeah. uh, observers that when um, Nazis march in the streets and anti-fascists come to protest their marching in the streets. We have witnessed over and over and over, both on the ground and on the news, that the cops, when they come to these protests and these counter-protests, the cops have their backs to the Nazis. And whoever the cops have their backs to are the people that they trust and the people that they are protecting. The cops never have their backs to the anti-fascists. I guess what But here's the thing, like, why, why would they... I mean, if, if Nazis and, and Trump supporters are taking to the streets, um, why, and, and we've won, then, I mean, I'm just going to sit out and watch them kill themselves. 
Maybe, but I guess our point is if there's a full-fledged attempt at a fascist takeover, we're not convinced that, that the local law enforcement, the law enforcement and the powers that be are going to you know necessarily be on our side. Now, the, the military commanders may you know uh, may not go along with it, you know, but there's plenty of trumpets in their ugly. ranks too. Yeah. It could get ugly. It'll be fine. No, there's definitely I mean, the thing is, is there are definitely, you know, conservatives and Republicans and, you know, but I, I think about people like Mattis or, um, you know, John Kelly, who are clearly, you know, not people that I agree with. And even they uphold to the institutions, you know, their, their idea of ensuring that you, you um, stand up for America, regardless of what your personal beliefs are. I do think that there are people like that that are still in the government who are hanging on. I mean, a lot of folks have quit, honest to God, like especially the lawyers, anybody who's a lawyer, because yeah. they're like, screw this, I can make more money somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and I might be but, ethically compromised and lose my bar card if I say. <laughs> dude, for real, like, yeah. you see lawyers, like, you really do hear stuff like that yeah. from people who, who've left. Yep. Um, who now, God love them, are making... 400,000 a year instead of their little bitty government salary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just hope to God, especially the EPA ones, I hope to God they'll come back. Me too. You know? I know. I know. But I don't know. I just, I have faith that there are, um, that there are not that many Nazis in the country. There are not that many Klansmen in the country. And, you know, there are not that many Trump supporters with guns willing to take the street to start shooting. Um, I know that there there are absolutely some, there are more than there should be, but I don't think that it's so many of them that the country will would fall. Um, and I, I think, honest to God, like if he refuses to have a peaceful transition of power, like already his legacy, like who he is as the president, will be ridiculed for, you know, until how long? We, we're still talking about George Washington and the first founding fathers. So I feel like this is something that's going to go on for several generations where he will always be the joke of, of American presidency. It's like forever. We've talked about Richard Nixon um, being the most corrupt and the most scandalous and the most paranoid. Um, Like we hear about it in schools, there are documentaries, there are movies, like all of these things. And there will be, just decades and decades of ridiculing Donald Trump and his family and his children and anybody connected with him. And well, his children may really be facing some legal shit after this is all (laughs) said and done. Oh yeah. Uh, One would hope, but I mean, I guess it's not just the, the Nazis and the ardent Trump supporters. I mean, you've got this whole movement of quote, regular conservatives who are really crazy evangelical, uh, who think Trump is like some second coming or messenger of God? Mm-hmm. And and you know, the but are those people that are going to get off the couch? That's the that's the linchpin here. Is mm-hmm. we have come become so complacent as a people that we don't take to the streets, right? This is something we've dealt with on the left, where we're like, come on, guys, like come on, show up, show up to a rally, and we. Have really moved people well, in our we, movement. We show up if they threaten to take the OA off the air, but you know, other than that. Well, even that, like I, 
the the seas and seas of people for the women's march and um you know the the events that we've had around the country like particularly the um the march for our for gun safety things like that like there are a huge number of people who are willing to schlep all the way to dc mm-hmm. for something like that and and that gives me a huge amount of, of faith and fundamentally we outnumber them and we're more motivated. I, I know that we do. And I think, too, if you, um, people who, if we can just message to people, this is your patriotic duty, like, it's time for you to nut up then and show up in the street. Um, I think people would do it. I think that there are still going to be people like my parents who are just going to hide and um, watch it go down on TV. And, uh, you know, but there there will be people who who show up and who fight back and there'll be me taking pictures the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, on that note, I would like to take a quick break. Uh, Sarah, we would love it if you'd be able to stick around for us for a little while more. I would love to talk to you about Brett Stevens. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that'll be a good topic. Uh Uh We're going to take a very quick break and we'll be right back with you. Can you stick around for a bit, Sarah? talk Sarah about. Uh, Rachel, you have something you want to jump in with first? Uh, I think just piggybacking off of the um, discussion about criminal justice, there was a story um, that I'm just going to read because it's uh, beautifully written by Natasha Lenard, who I love, as we all know. Um, in secretive court hearing, NYPD cops who raped Brooklyn teen in custody get no jail time, is the headline. <sighs> So I'm just going to read you the story, and then we'll talk about it. The young woman who goes by Anna Chambers on social media had just a few short words for the public on Thursday evening. Quote, fuck the criminal justice system, she tweeted. Earlier that day, through a call from her lawyer, Chambers learned that the two former New York Police Department officers who raped her while on duty would serve no jail time. Eddie Martins and Richard Hall, the cops who resigned after the incident involving then-18-year-old Chambers, 
were sentenced to five years of probation after they pled guilty to 11 charges, including bribery and misconduct. Both men admitted to having sex with the teenage girl while she was held in their custody in 2017, an act that now, thanks to Chambers' case, constitutes rape under the law and always constituted rape under any moral reading of the word. The pleas and the light sentences handed down in a secretive court hearing come at the same time that NYPD officers and their belligerent union are protesting the long-overdue firing of Daniel Pantaleo, the cop who choked Eric Garner to death. Together with the closure of the criminal case surrounding Chambers' ordeal, it could not be more clear the extent to which police impunity continues to reign. Quote, it's completely outrageous, Chambers' attorney Michael David told me on the phone Thursday night. They admitted on the record to having sex with her in their van. No jail time is outrageous. Anna is hysterical. Chambers' case should have been clear-cut from the moment in 2017 that a hospital rape kit found semen matching Martin's and Hall's DNA inside the teenager's body. The young woman had been detained, handcuffed, and taken into the officer's unmarked van, having been found in possession of a small amount of drugs. Chambers was then forced to perform oral sex on both officers and had vaginal sex with Martins. Then the cops left her on a corner. At the same time, state law did not assert the most obvious of facts, that a person in police custody cannot consent to sex. The egregious legal loophole has since been closed, but it was too late to benefit Chambers or to stop Martins and Hall from getting away with rape. All rape charges against the officers were dropped in March as prosecutors questioned Chambers' credibility, an issue that should have no bearing on a case with such clear-cut facts. Chambers' attorney told me that he and his client have not, had not been made aware in advance of Thursday's hearing, having expected the officer's next court date to be on September 9th. Indeed, Chambers tweeted 10 days ago, I'll be in court September 9th. David, the attorney, said they did it secretly. It wasn't even on the court calendar. David not only learned about the officer's plea deals when he was called by a New York, or only learned about them when he was called by a New York Post court reporter, who in turn had been tipped off by a court clerk. The secretive hearing was the latest insult poured upon Chambers' injurious criminal justice ordeal. What's more, King County Supreme Court Justice Danny Chun handed down a sentence more lenient than even the prosecution recommended. Quote, for the record, Your Honor, we do oppose a non-jail sentence. Brooklyn Assistant District Attorney Frank DeGatno stated during Thursday's brief hearing, according to court transcripts, the district attorney's office recommended one to three years in jail on a plea for charges that could carry a seven-year sentence. In response, the judge accounted for his leniency in an abrupt monologue peppered with victim blaming. Quote, the credibility of the victim or the complainant, said Chun in a notable replacement of the words, mm. was seriously, seriously questionable at best. Chun, proceeding to refer to the victim only as the complainant, added that, quote, there are criminal activities on both sides. <laughs> he thereby laid culpability at Chambers' feet for her role in the so-called bribery, that is, her rape at the hands of armed, uniformed police officers. This was not Chun's first high-profile turn at enforcing NYPD impunity. In 2016, in a rare instance of a criminal conviction for a killer cop, former officer Peter Lang was found guilty by a jury for the manslaughter of an unarmed black man, Akai Gurley. Lang had his gun drawn finger on trigger while carrying out a vertical patrol in a darkened stairwell in Brooklyn pink, Brooklyn's pink houses. The cop heard a noise and fired. His bullet ricocheted off a wall and struck Gurley in the heart. Neither Lang nor his partner carried out CPR. Chun deemed a sentence of five years probation as appropriate in that instance, too. 
Chambers' attorney told me that he will be writing again to the U.S. Attorney's Office seeking to pursue a federal civil rights violation against Holland Martins. His first letter, sent earlier this year, was not answered, and he is pessimistic about the possibility of a justice on a federal level. With this president, they won't go after police, said David. Uh When it comes to police sexual misconduct, there is no Me Too. Well, that was uplifting. Yeah. Well, here we are. So one of the things that that we've noticed in Washington, D.C., is that there obviously there's never going to be any criminal accountability, but... You know, they've had so many civil lawsuits at this point that it really has changed a lot of the behavior of the um, of the police force. And the only thing that I can think at this point is, you know, you've got to hold people accountable financially and bleed them dry. And if they are scared to, you know, do something illegal because um, it's going to cost them financially, then maybe just maybe the police chiefs are going to fire people who cost them all their funding. Maybe, um, hopefully. The other thing, too, is you remember um, the dude in California who raped the uh, the Stanford girl and he pled, yeah, and he pled affluence or something. And, yeah. Um, and he got I basically no affluence. sentence. <laughs> Um, Literally. Yeah, I know. I know. I just, uh, hearing it in those terms, I have to morbidly laugh. Plant um, influence. I know, right? This is what I mean about laughing into the abyss is sometimes you really, that's all you got. Yep. Um, the, uh, it's obviously not, this is not the first time this has happened. There are so many stories like this over the last, you know, 20 years. Yeah, and I would say, too, like, it's not just people in custody, um, women in jail, right? Like, we've heard so many stories about women in prison who are, um, who are raped by uh, prison guards. So, like, what, what is insane to me is this is not just a rape, this is child molestation. And there are child molesters working for the NYPD. Right. And they allow them to do it. And so that's where I feel like the public comes into play. Um, if there are judges that are elected to allow this stuff to happen, then there needs to be, it needs to be exactly like what we did with Steve King, right? Like we need petitions. We need protests outside the office. We need people to show up in courtrooms and, uh, and be willing to get kicked out of stuff. Like it, if we protest this stuff, it, these people are not used to that. Um, Judges are not accustomed to people, um, you know, calling them accomplices to rape. Well, it wasn't or accomplices judge, to child molestation. Didn't the judge in the Stanford case get censured or voted out or something happened to him? Yes. As far as I remember. He got, he, uh, I thought he got voted out. I think so. Yeah, he's no longer And I think, judge. too, like you can, there are so many different things you can, um, you can have you can shoot for censuring. You can try, you can vote them out. You can do, if it's somebody who is appointed, you can impeach them. Like there's a lot of stuff that you could do. Um, you could also have elected officials start calling the judge, writing letters to a judge, do a, um, you know, a friend of the court letter from every democratic member of the state house, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like there are a lot of things that can be done in this case where you can raise the profile of these things. And, 
um, you know, it's really just about mobilization. And the NYPD already has a lot of issues that they're facing. And so I feel like if people start saying, why are you protecting child molesters? You know, like that is not a good PR move for them. And um, I mean, finally, it took us how long before we finally got Eric Garner's murderer to get kicked off the police force? And um, what kind of justice is that? I mean, thank God he's not a cop anymore, but the two or three cops who were there with him still are. And the worst thing that happens when you choke a man to death is that you get fired after yeah, no, years? It's, absurd. it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I would love for there to be some kind of federal legislation that, that actually holds people accountable for that stuff. Um, because that's the only way at this point we're going to get it we're going to get any action off of it. Right. Because I mean, the Justice Department had, is a joke, right? There's just, no, they're not going to do anything. Well, I think too, like this idea of um, necessary force is not something that has ever really been a part of policing until, you know, what, like the last several decades. And that's the thing that my uncle talks about is it's like you, you know, there was a time when, people were held accountable if they did something wrong as a police officer. And, um, and if it comes to like, it's almost like police have learned the, the phrase where it's like, you know, I was threatened mm-hmm. and if well, you can, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, so if you can, if there are laws that can then hold somebody accountable for, um, for these kinds of actions, then that's how we stop it. I mean, that's how the system works, right? Like, if you can't do it at the national level, then do it at the state level. Like, why are there not laws at the state level? Why are there not people who are, you know, what, where is where is Black Lives Matter asking for these laws to be passed? Mm-hmm. These are, you know, it's like you can't do anything. You can't fix this because you can't fix cops. You can't fix racists. You can't get elected officials to be willing to... um be willing to uh, give more funding to policing and to pay cops more, you know, like they're not going to do it. They don't care. Well, what, what's so shocking to me is that something that Tosh points out is that like under any moral reading of the, of the universe, a person who is in police custody with uniformed and armed police officers in a uniform, like in a cop's fucking van can't consent to anything. And that 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 the idea that 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 could be sex and not rape, consensual sex and not rape makes zero sense. And the fact that just because of this, are we like, oh, yeah, maybe we should make that illegal is insane. Right. Like that that could be an oversight. It's like how marital rape became illegal in like the 1970s. Mm hmm. This idea that, like, like, well, she consented to the sex. How do you consent to sex when you are literally being detained by law enforcement? This is the world we live in now where, I mean, honest to God, it's like this fight with women where men really do believe that, that they have the right to do whatever they want. And when you have judges like this who are um, predominantly male and who have no exposure to, you know, actual victims other than their courtroom and never, you know, talk to actual victims about their experience. Why are they on the bench? Right. 
Because another you know? old white dude put them there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there are, you have to start looking at, all right, what can we do? You know, we can't do this. We can't do that. This is absurd. This is complete nonsense. All right, what's next? What, what do we do? How do we stop this? And I mean, I think honest to God, as absurd as it is, we really have to start looking at what we can do to fix things instead of just, you know, being depressed about it instead of just being like, this is wrong. Like we have to fix the laws and the only people who can do that are elected officials. And we need more people in office willing to stand up and be like, all right, we're done with this. Like we're going to fix this. Better DAs, better AGs. Yeah. Better city council people, better laws, better laws. And it starts at the local level. Absolutely. Um, And those are not sexy offices that people want to campaign for. And it's so sad because, you know, all politics really is local. You have to control these things at a state or local level. Mm -hmm. And absolutely. And it seems like, especially with Democrats, like I see those damn Tom Steyer ads all the time. And it's like, I get it. You want impeachment. Guess what? (laughs) People have already decided about impeachment. So if you're going to spend a hundred million dollars on something, why don't you campaign on, on Democrats in local offices? Yeah. Because nobody wants to run for a local office. Or securing voting machines or, or legislation to... That's what Stacey Abrams is doing, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, she's not fucking around. She's not trying to be a VP. She's not trying to do anything else. She's like, look, I need for people to be able to vote. Mm-hmm. That's and what's it. crazy about the Stacey... Well, not crazy, but what's amazing to me about the Stacey Abrams project is you could literally fund her entire project with something like $40 million. Yeah. Tom Steyer's dropping $100 million just to get into a debate and, and you're like, make it <laughs> right. And you're like, dude, what the hell is this about? It's like, about vanity, vanity and ego. Yeah. And I'm the only one that can and, fix it. And he's got, and that money to him is chump change. Yeah. And so I, again, this goes back to funders too. Like, why are we not waging these campaigns on online? Why are activists not being like, Hey, Tom Steyer, why don't you fund Stacey Abrams? Right. You know, we could we could do stuff like that where if we just blew up his Twitter nonstop for two weeks with tons and tons of people, I guarantee you it would make a difference. Yeah, it would maybe. it would spur articles. I mean, that would be something we would write about if we saw a bunch of people on Twitter going after that. I would totally write about well, that. I'm willing, I'll blow up his fucking Twitter. He'll probably just block me. But I mean, yeah, I'm willing to. But if a bunch of people get blocked, that's a story, too. Yeah. Yeah. I've been bitching at him about this for a long time. Well. Um, I'll join you in that fight. You know, cut the crap, Tom. Let's. Yeah, I think now that you know what I think now that he hasn't made the debate, he might shift his focus. <laughs> hopefully, shift his focus and stop like literally yeah. setting fire to his money in giant pits. But you know, and I even got Ali Velshi to ask him a question about that. Like, why are you dumping money into this instead of doing what the uh, I use the Koch brothers as the example, where the Koch brothers I think they dropped something Co- like thirty Coke, million. The Koch brother. Yeah, thank God. Yeah, because there's not they're not there anymore. But like the uh, back in the day in yeah. 2010, when the Republicans decided that they want to change all the legislatures for the um, to draw the gerrymander everything, uh-huh. um, it only took them like I think 30 million dollars yeah. to take all of those legislatures. Yep. And so it's just like, why are you not spending money on this? And Tom Steyer's answer to that question, whenever Velshi asked him, was, oh, I'm still going to be keeping my commitments to all of the, you know, the organizations that I support and the money that I use for other stuff. And it's like, 
clearly that money's not working either, Tom. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. all this money, like, where is it going? Because it's not going somewhere where it's making a difference. And then that becomes the question, like, is this really about change or is this about your big fat ego, you rich, egomaniac, old white dude asshole? Yes. Yeah. And if I, I mean, we don't do, I don't really get to editorial on stuff. Otherwise, I would have written a takedown of Tom Steyer a long time ago, but um, that we could totally promote. But <laughs> I'm, I'm in part of this campaign. But it's like, you know, he's not the only one. I use him because he's the one everybody knows, but he's obviously not the only one. Yeah, sure. And so there are these big fundraising groups like the Democracy Alliance who have who pool their money for all this stuff, and the meetings that they do, like they play it safe. And they do meetings with these high-powered, yeah. you know, officials and organizations. Like, these are not normal people who are meeting with them. Like, we are not actual people who see what is happening on the ground do not have any influence over who is giving what, what money to, to what. And, that, and we could change that really easily just by completely blowing up their Twitter account. Yeah, I think Little that's thing. right. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good plan. I mean, you know, even, you know, in Colorado, we have two <laughs> Colorado politicians that are running for president and nobody in Colorado can figure out why they're doing that, much less anyone else. Um, well, one Hickenlooper now. just dropped out and yeah, he's going to run for Senate, which is interesting because we asked him to do that instead of run for president. He decided that he wasn't, quote, cut out for running for Senate. Um, <laughs> and he's going to end up being an ad against him now because he screwed that up exactly and also in the meantime we have collected a group of pretty amazing colorado politicians to actually beat cory gardner and now hickenlooper's coming in and it's like no we don't want you we He's never like, want to take you. my consolation prize i'll now. take my consolation prize this yeah. and it's like no we don't want you we have these really amazing progressive women and uh one white dude um who i would rather any of them then Hickenlooper take Cory Gardner's seat. But now he's like, well, I'm in, so it's mine. And it's And it's, he'll probably win it because of the name recognition. Yeah, it's become this really interesting battle locally about like, wait, what? No, you shouldn't run for president, but we don't want you as a senator. You yourself don't want to be a senator, so no thanks. <laughs> um, and now he's like got butthurt feelings about that. And he's like, I thought you said, <laughs> and it's like, fuck off, man. Just go away. Just go be an oil lobbyist. Yeah, That's what you were meant for. Yep. Um, and then do. Michael Bennett is still in it for reasons that I just don't understand. Nobody cares. He's a perfectly fine senator. He should stay that Did way. Did he make the second debate? The I don't think so. I don't know. I haven't looked because I, I just don't care. He's I just don't think a, that he did. No, I, I, so. I imagine he didn't. He should just say a senator. He's fine. Just he's perfectly fine. Votes Democrat every time. Senator. Yeah. He's yeah. not fine. No toast. Liberalish white guy. Colorado senator. He's not of note in any other way, but he's fine. Anyway, I'd like to shift gears a little bit uh, on the subject of editorials. Brett Stevens, what the <laughs> fuck? So everyone who doesn't know, somebody tell the story, because everyone's oh, not on Twitter as much as y'all. God almighty. So there was a story, lots of back way up, uh, I guess a week ago or so, there was a story about how the New York Times building is infested with bedbugs. Um, and then this professor, I forget where, uh, Said, just made a little quip like, ah, that means Brett Stevens is a bed bug or something to that effect. He, he said it funnier. His delivery was much better. And oh boy, did Brett Stevens get butthurt about that. Brett Stevens of the New York Times. Brett Stevens of the New York Times, who's an awful, awful 
terrible columnist. Uh, I guess he's an opinion guy, really. Yeah. Um, he's not a journalist. No, no. He's, he's an opinion writer. And he's, he's a climate change denier, and he is a Me Too has gone too far guy. Yeah, and he's just women, he's garbage. He hates millennials. But he doesn't like Trump, so MSNBC's been kissing his ass and having him on as a guest for like every day for the last two years because fuck. In any event, so this professor calls him a bed bug, and oh boy, does Brett Stevens get butt hurt. First, he, he tries to get him fired by sending uh, an email to the provost of the university and somebody else high in the university. It was just to the professor and then CC'd was the provost of the university. No, he also sent to somebody else in the university high up, it turns out. Um, and you like, this is the same shit that just oh, like a week or two prior, uh, what's his name, Weissman, got demoted for doing the same shit to somebody. Roxanne Gay. Yeah. Uh, so Brett Stevens decides he's going to do that. And then, as if that's not enough, when there's pushback on that, he writes a column about how calling him a bed bug are, are like Nazis exterminating Jews. Literally, this this is what he said. This came out yesterday. This is also the man who um, has written countless breathless articles about free speech on college campuses <laughs> yes. and how you should let Milo Yiannopoulos come yep. and everybody are snowflakes because they can't hear differences of opinions and free speech is not valued anymore and isn't it a shame and then someone calls him a bed bug and he says this is literally the lowest of the low I can't imagine being called anything worse and all of the women of Twitter just went is that a joke? <laughs> oh really? A bed bug, and that's the worst thing you can imagine being called on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, it was so funny. Like I thought it was a joke. I really I know. didn't think it was a joke. I, I didn't think it, it was real. Had to be the amount of abuse that women experience on Twitter. If the worst thing I'd ever been called was a bed bug, that would be kind of cute. <laughs> I would be like, oh, that's adorable. I'm like a slight annoyance and hard to get rid of. That would be kind of a compliment considering the like vile threats and horrible things that I have been called on Twitter as a woman who has an opinion. Yeah. I mean, the good news here is that now every time there is a threat or, um, you know, some terrible comment where somebody is attacking me, now I have somebody perfect to send it to. You know, right. I can Obviously be like, here, you can have this one too. Let me know if that's Worst better or worse than your bug. bug. Uh, um, well, he probably would look on his nose at you for not being a real journalist because you don't get don't get your checks cashed by the New York Times, you know. Oh, I imagine I my editor would get a letter or something. And, <laughs> um, which is so funny because there, there are so many people out there who – because I end up being sort of the the official apologist because I run the Twitter account. Yeah. And so I see all of our retweets and all of the mentions and the terrible comments and attacks we get all the time. So I end up being like this apologist. Like, I'm sorry you don't like our verb. <laughs> you know, like that is the biggest thing. I get yelled at for the verb that we use in a story all the time where it's like I've been called racist because I said that somebody slammed somebody, you know, like. Um, Zerlina Maxwell was one of them. She went after me because I said Zerlina Maxwell slams so-and-so in some panel discussion. And she was like, that's racist. And I'm like, huh? Like, here's a list of every single headline where we've used that verb. Yeah, five times a day, probably. Yeah, like, we we have a, <laughs> a pretty 
I, I have a list of all these verbs that are the most trafficked, like stories, verbs people like to click on. Right. <laughs> Honest to God. And, and so it's just like there are all of these people who, um, who just like get crazy about the stupidest stuff while there are people who are actually hurting. Well, let me like – they're, they're actual attacks. Let me let me ask you this, Sarah, because I think the whole Brett Stevens phenomenon and the fact that he even has a job at the New York Times is a product of this whole thing that we ran into in the eighties and nineties, where right the right wing and right wing media and people like Rush Limbaugh sort of moved the goalposts on everybody and said like the mainstream media is really liberal because they don't espouse you know the crazy shit we say, and so. There's been a reaction to that by the, quote, mainstream media for objectivity over reality, right? It's why, it's why yeah. I, I literally can't listen to NPR cover politics anymore because they are so obsessed with this idea of trying to bring balance into everything. Like when, you know, when Trump says he's going to eat live children and then they do, well, you know, well, let's talk about that. Is well, that a reasonable Alex thing Witt to do? Alex Witt on MSNBC. Right. We'll just literally go on the air and be like. President Trump thinks nuking hurricanes is a good idea. Could he be right? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, like, what is happening right now? I, I Could he anymore. be right? Let's actually make an intelligent, scholarly person about the weather answer the question, could he be right about <laughs> nuking hurricanes? Instead of saying, I think the president has lost his mind. Nuking hurricanes no, you have to be objective, is Rachel. ridiculous. You have to be objective. Can you tell me what would happen if he actually did that? But this is, That's a fucking yeah. news story. Not like... I need you to tell me if he might be right. And then, then it shifts the entire conversation and you're like, this person just is sort of looking at the camera like, um, no. <laughs> and now they have to explain why he's not right instead of being like, here's what would happen if that happened, right? Like, we're shifting this narrative in this way that I think is really dangerous. Yeah, that it, that it, that is now a reasonable topic of conversation yes. to have. Now we should debate whether he's right. And it's like, no, 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 stop. That's not how but this you have be. to be objective. That's what she learned in Journalism 101 on her first day. Like objectivity is, is the key. Otherwise, Rush Limbaugh will yell at us and that's bad. Oh. In any event, my, my point is, Sarah, that I think it's from the school of like, oh, we have to be objective. So we better hire some of these right wing think tank people and opinion people so that we uh, appear balanced. Right. And then like. Then they go off the deep end because they're already off the deep end. They're idiots and man babies, uh-huh. and then you humiliate your newspaper, and you're the newspaper of record who is just looks like a fish wrapper. I don't know your opinion on that. Well, I think too, like just from practically speaking, you know, if I I work for an online website like this, mm-hmm. not obviously as big or as prominent and as amazing as the New York Times, but the New York Times is a business. And they are all about click rates, just like we are. Sure. They are all about making sure that they can get a lot of clicks off of their um, uh, their stories and their opinion columns. And my question to them is, are you really getting that much out of Brett Stevens? Because my guess is that right. he's probably not paying for himself at this point. I don't know. I've never seen somebody share a Brett Stevens Stevens column. We've never written about anything he's ever said. And the the right wing doesn't because it's the New York Times and they're not going to read the New York Times. Yeah. I mean, there's really no point at this uh, at this juncture of having Brett Stevens on at the New York Times. I mean, maybe um, maybe he could if he doesn't if you're not paying him, 
then uh, <laughs> call him and it would be worth it's something. Like Paul but... Manafort, he's working for free. Yeah, I mean, it really is kind of that level of thinking where you're like, dude, this is a waste of your money. Um, this is just a bad business decision. Um, two, like my fate, one of my favorite things in the world is the dry sand effect. I mean, I think <laughs> yes. we talked about it once before, <laughs> yes. and it's like, it just it gives me it, it's like it it's so it's sort of Schadenfreude, but it fills my heart with so much warmth. <laughs> I'm so offended at being compared to a bed bug. I want it eradicated from the internet. And so then everyone now knows this thing, which we got like nine likes and zero retweets from a professor that uh-huh. no one follows, is now a story that everyone is talking about because uh, it's amazing. And everyone is not laughing at the professor. They're not attacking the no, professor. No, they are laughing at Brett Stevens. Just precisely and what he honestly, was trying God. to avoid. Exactly. And so you're a kind of like, and you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> so I, to some extent, you're kind of like, well, you sort of made this bed yeah. and your bed bug. So <laughs> we'll lay in it. I, have um, it, I also I, think. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, I want to change. The name of the bed bug to the Brett bug. Oh, oh my God. That's good. Yes. Send that to John Oliver. Like we should just, that would be a fantastic hashtag. And it's just, just a fantastic a, outcome of the whole thing is it's no longer yeah, a bed bug. It's just Oliver. a Brett bug. That's it. While we're Oliver. sitting here. Yeah. You, do it. <laughs> what you should do. John Oliver. <laughs> Sweet. I'm going to, I'm going to tag y'all on this. Yeah, okay. do it. <laughs> <laughs> And I was also thinking what you could do is uh, – this might get you in trouble, but like find some article about you know another – one of Trump's properties being infested with bed, bug, bed yeah, bugs. Yeah, Doral. Doral. Doral, yeah. And then like accidentally put in Brett bugs and then you know issue a correction and an apology. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be gold. Your editor might not let that slide, but you know. Yeah, she probably wouldn't. Slide, I mean, I can do it on Twitter. <laughs> I can do it on Twitter and see. Um, I'm in. Brett Bugs. There's been but so especially many like Brett Bugs stories. It's weird. Yeah, no, there definitely have been. Um, but what's interesting is like my my boss is a woman. She's been in this business for a really, really, really long time. Used to work at Alt Weeklies. Like she's been around news forever. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of people like Brett Stevens throwing a fit because I'm trolling him on Twitter, um, like she would have no no room for that. She'd just be like, Oh, that's really cute. Like <laughs> Right, you're not gonna get fired the, because Brett Stevens CC'd your <laughs> boss that you were being mean to him on Twitter. No. Right, like the conversation would really become do we write about him attacking us and make fun of him for it or not? Like that's right. how this would go. Well, and that's the thing I think that they don't get. Like these old white men are like people aren't allowed to say bad things about me. If I tell your boss, you're going to get fired. And everyone's <laughs> boss is like, "What? What are you No, that's not how this works and it's funny and now we're just going to make fun of you." And they're like, well, wait a minute, no, I, like, that's not right. They, that's not what's supposed to happen. I'm supposed to be immune to criticism. But sadly, the university where this professor wrote, like they invited Brett Stevens to come talk. Yeah, um, they did. They may be rethinking that now because he's, he's having such Oh, a I totally would too, though. That'd be hilarious. Can you imagine like having that idiot show up at your college and then you have an opportunity dress as, bre- as bedbugs would be amazing. Well, I think too, like the thing is about universities is, is 
you know, one, students actually know what, what bed bugs are, uh, <laughs> just dorms. Um, but yeah. two, like women in these colleges know about me too. There has been a, uh, an, an anti-rape, you know, campaign going on on campuses for the last several years. Like the whole world of, of feminism at colleges and universities is actually a thing. And so I would love, I would love to have all these women show up and be like, here, let me read you my tweets. Right. You know, let me read you the attacks that I've received just as a nobody student at my university. Right. And to confront him about the shit he's said about the Me Too movement and to confront him about the things that he said that they don't agree with. Like, please come to my college campus. Please do that. We'll have a ball. Yeah, I mean, and I, I love whenever people um, talk about the the school thing as a free speech issue because it's like there are opportunities to educate stupid people, stupid conservatives who show up at campuses, and mm-hmm. um, and when Milo has done that a couple of times, it's actually worked. Um, but a lot of times, he like there's he has such a big huge riot that he never actually speaks. You know, it really is just all about the um, the outrage porn is what I call it. Mm. And so I think that there's a difference between people who are just saying things for, you know, like professional trolls, essentially. Right. Um, versus people who want to talk about actual issues. And I think on, on Brett Stevens, you really could school him on the reality of online not just me. Harassment and, yeah. yeah, but online harassment for sure. Well, that's yeah. the thing. I've, I've read his columns or tried to. He's not a good writer. He's not smart. He doesn't, you know, use good examples or make compelling arguments. He, you know, he just kvetches and I could do that. I mean, like I do it all the time. Like, why is he such a venerated writer? Why, why is Brett Stevens so important? Cause he's been doing it. So, but that's the thing. Like he's not, he hasn't been doing it as long as a lot of local columnists have been doing it. And he's not, you know, as nuanced and as intelligent and clever as a lot of people are. So I don't understand like why he's still there. It's again, it's, there's no clicks. There are no clicks going to it. So why, why are you paying for it? Right. And again, I think it goes back to the thing like, well, we got to have balance, you know, we can't, (laughs) you know, even I guess Maureen Dowd is still considered somehow, uh, uh, liberal at this point, it's like we got to balance yeah. it out and have some right wingers, or else you know we'll be considered to whatever. Um, which I love it whenever they do stuff like that, and then they have people like Nicole Wallace, and it's like, oh, we're going to appoint this former George W. Bush official, and she hates Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> she spends every damn day talking about how much she hates the president, how what cowards Republicans are, and it's like, wow, that did not end up well for you guys. Like that? Yeah. That was not what you wanted. Um, I, I, I'm over all these, quote, never Trump people, but, you know, I bite my tongue. I understand the utility of, like, their voices for now, but... Yeah, I mean, they're going to be the voice that helps move Republicans to being never Trumpers. And that's the only benefit of them. You cannot have a liberal go talk to a conservative and explain to them why they need to change parties. But <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You can have a fellow Republican or a conservative go to them and say, "Look, this is what what I did and what I what I believe and why I believe that right. you know my conservatism is more um, is more welcome as an independent." Well, we, or yeah, 
we got about 10 minutes left. I wanted to talk about Joe Biden a little bit because I know you have met him. Um, you, you run his fan page. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't really that much anymore, but, um, but yeah. We're not, we're not big fans over here. Of, uh, I'm so pissed. You have no idea. Oh, my Are God. You? Okay, and please I, tell me. Yeah, give us your thoughts. The thing is, is I try really hard not to talk, not to speak ill of any Democrats except for Bill de Blasio. Right. Um, Fair. Fair. Because he is so much fun to, to mock. He It's just, it's too easy. there's so much glee there. Yeah. Um, yeah. That really, truly is schadenfreude. But he just acts like an ass all the time. Yeah. Um, there was somebody on uh, that I heard talking about him where they said that uh, he's like the guy uh, who cuts in line at the cab stand at the airport. Yeah. Like, that's who Bill de Blasio is. And I was like, oh, damn, that is so true. That is like, I know that guy. Right. And he's so entitled and so, you know. Anyway, um, so I've just been annoyed. And for the most part, it's been super insidery annoyed because, I just don't feel like the campaign is being run that well. Yeah. And I feel like it's very, it's entitled and it's, mm-hmm. um, it, it's operating under the assumption that it's an inevitable nominee. It's not, mm-hmm. I'm not asking for your vote. I'm telling you to vote. Yes. And that's not the way that it, any politics should be. It is not about, it, it should never be about the candidate, right? That is the one thing that Obama taught us is it wasn't about, he kept trying to tell us over and over again, this is not about me. This is about us. Like we are going to do this together. And Trump tried to emulate that. Um, and, and sometimes you hear him say the word movement, like this is a movement. Uh, and it's because somebody's trying to tell him to do that, but really it's, he's a narcissist and it's about him. And, and so I wish that there could be some semblance of um, understanding about like, this is not how we need to run campaigns anymore. Like he's running a campaign like John Kerry in 2004 and, and, and a little bit like Hillary Clinton last year, which again, was just so entitled. It was so filled with entitlement. Um, I shouldn't have to go to Michigan because they should be voting for me. I shouldn't have to do this because, and it's like, no, I get it. Like it's annoying. You have to do this. You have to go here. They should be supporting you. They should love you. But you have to work for it. Let me, you have to show up. Let me bring up this aspect of it because this is the most recent with him uh, taking elements of a, of a true story and then just sort of completely uh, exaggerating it and, and, and getting 90% of the details wrong of his you know war guy story. Um, and then them turning – like his campaign and his flack people turning around and saying – well, like, uh, it was sort of right. And you know what? In the age of Trump, why are we even hitting Joe for that? And I'm like, no, no, on our side, you can't do that. <laughs> like, Well, I mean, I kind of agree in the sense that, um, like, why are we focusing on this instead of all of the lies that people actually tell? Yeah. Um, because Biden basically combined three different stories into one. Like, there are all pieces of story that that came from yes, that I think but he presented it as this so one story <laughs> yeah and then it just happened so long ago that he forgot like what the specifics are like I don't believe for a second know that, that it was malicious no no but yeah and when grandpa does that you know you you think it's it's uh it's cute, it's cute and but he's running for president <laughs> but there's a difference between somebody lying about you know the sky is not blue yeah. versus 
you know, <clears throat> I heard this story about this guy who was amazing that I want to tell you about. Sure. You know, like there's a difference between uh, like uh, Trump lies about himself to make himself seem bigger and better and more amazing. Um, Trump, Biden got a story wrong talking about somebody else being amazing. I, I understand you know? that. And if it was presented as a parable, that's fine. But he was very specific and detailed and, and said, and then this happened and then this thing happened. And then and like he was recounting a verbatim story. And, and if it's not accurate, I find that problematic. I just do. I think I think we need to do better than that, you know, um, because, again, it's but not. I don't think that's why you're mad at Joe Biden. I don't think that because he got a story about a war hero wrong, that that's why you're mad at him. I think that that's an example of why you think he shouldn't be running for president. Exactly. And it's a frustration that is borne out in this one specific thing. I don't think you're actually mad about the story. I think you're mad that that he's running and that he's running the kind of campaign that he's running mm -hmm. and that like this is just like sort of an outburst of like this is everything balled up into one thing about why I'm mad, right? Yeah, and you know what? I Joe had himself a nice little legacy being Obama's wingman for eight years. And his and best friend, and he wore fucking thing. awesome sunglasses, and he had good memes, and he could have just left it there and been beloved forever. And mm -hmm. now we're in a situation where oh, I'm God. pissed like, off at Joe Biden, and I hate it. <laughs> it's kind of like, um, he, I feel like he missed his window. He should have yeah. run in 2016. Yeah. Yes. And... Hillary yes. should have, um, you know, should have stopped at 2008. Yep. And, um, it, again, it like, running. he should not be running. I, I, and it's sad. Like I, you guys know, like I have been long been a Joe Biden supporter. I, I fought to support him in a draft effort in 2016 and was like all behind this, mostly because of the women stuff. Like I, I'm huge whenever it comes to domestic violence issues and, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. So like, that's where my, um, my fandom comes from, but the, you know, it's, it's just when people, when politicians start acting entitled and it trickles down to their staff, you know, I'm just like, I'm over it. I'm done. Like, you're not going to win this no. acting like you deserve it. Well, well, and if he wins the nomination, yeah. I, I mean, what are we going to have? Two doddering old men wandering around on stage, not knowing what state they're in, not knowing what's going on, um, yelling loudly, and then <laughs> we'll just pick from one of those. Like, that's not okay with me. And honestly, you know, there's been some discussion around here and on this podcast about his record, which didn't come up in 2008 when he was the vice president because he was the vice president. So who cares? Yeah, right. And 2008 was a different time. We're in a time now where you look at the crime bill that he was instrumental in crafting, and you look at some of the speeches that he did on the floor of the Senate, and you look at some of the, the notes that he has a long record, and that record extends back to a time when very, very racist laws were passed and very, very problematic statements were made. And everyone keeps telling me, you know, that was back then. Everybody talked that way back then. And my two responses to that are this. Yep. And none of those people are running for president in 2020. And two, okay, but I need to hear him apologize. I need to hear him come out and say, look, I was a different man then. 
it was different times. I didn't understand things the way that I do now. I didn't understand the unintended consequences of that bill and how it would lead to mass incarceration. I think mass incarceration is a problem, and it's something that I'm going to address in my campaign. And if I become president, it's something I will end. Like, I need him to take accountability for what he did back then. Or I can't. I can't. See, I thought that he had said something to that effect where he was like, you know, this was a mistake. It turned out wrong. We had good intentions. Um, it didn't he, work yeah, out the way he, that it did. He, he kind of did, but he needs to do more of it. It was he, a real vague apology. I think, too, what I would like to see is the next level of that where it's like, okay, you know, here are all of the things that I screwed up and that I, I've learned from. Here's what I want to do moving forward. And that's what yes. I feel like Elizabeth Warren has done yes. is she she's really been able to say, look – you know, it's not just I have a plan for that. Right. It's I learned from this right. and figured out what next, what the next step looks like. Yes. So and what the right thing to do is now. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're about out of time, but you know Biden is still leading, but I think Warren's running a better campaign, and I think that will matter eventually. Um, Who's but, your pick? Do you have one yet? Uh, I'm still pissed that everybody's making me do an election this early out. So I'm not. <laughs> Fair. It's gonna be a while before I let that go. Yeah. Um, but when honest to God, I I don't care. I right. really don't care. Well, when you're ready, I, you you know what podcast to come on and make your big uh, endorsement. <laughs> I think, honest to God, I'm just gonna be for the nominee. Um, well, we all are. Yeah. I, but I don't I don't care anymore. I just I'm so angry at at our president and that our country is falling apart, and I'm afraid for. Mm-hmm all of the people who are vulnerable because yep. of that. Yep. And have been. So. Um, yep. Agreed. Well, we're out of time, but Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on our 200th episode. As always, it was been a blast talking to you. We love talking to you. We love having you on. You have an open invitation to come vent anytime, anytime at all. Aww. I love you guys. You're amazing. We you are you. amazing and doing great, important things. So I'm so grateful for you. Oh, you're the best. Thank you very much. Congratulations on the 200th episode. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Uh, I've been Travis. Sarah, again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, 200th episode in the books. We'll be back next week. Stay active, stay tuned, stay involved. At Reverend Duo on Twitter. Talk to you next week. Adios. Thank you.